You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual A little good news, courtesy of the Chosen Family Law Center. Legislation has been introduced in Berkeley, California, and Oakland, California, that would ban discrimination based on family and relationship structure. This comes after Somerville, Massachusetts, last year amended its anti-discrimination laws to include family or relationship structure as a protected class, meaning landlords, employers, public servants, the police— can't discriminate against people based on their being in an open relationship or in throuples or quads, just like they can't discriminate against people based on their race or their religion or their sexual orientation or their gender. And the year before, in 2022, a court in New York ruled that throuples, at least when it comes to housing law and renewing leases, have the same legal rights couples do. Steps in the right direction. And reading about these cases, the law in Somerville, the ruling in New York, the proposed new legislation in Berkeley and Oakland, giving me a little deja vu. It's taken me back to the first domestic partnership registries for same-sex couples that passed in the early 1980s, and then the enactment of civil unions a decade later. Same-sex couples, we couldn't get married. There wasn't support for gay marriage then, but there was a recognition that gay relationships existed and... Our relationships were kind of, sort of, like family relationships, and we needed some form of recognition under the law to protect people who were in these already existing, whether you liked it or not, gay relationships. They were, when they passed these domestic partner registries and civil unions, they were definitely half a loaf. But we were starved for carbs, for any recognition of our relationships at all. And we took the win. We took that half a loaf and we kept fighting until we got the whole fucking loaf. Now, with more and more people forming non-traditional families, a majority of Americans do not live in nuclear families anymore, as the Chosen Family Law Center points out. And as our guest on today's show argues in his new book, which we will talk about later, the failure to recognize these relationships, the relationships that people are in, the failure to recognize their existence, and for the people in them, their importance leaves people vulnerable, the people in these relationships, in the same way that denying any legal recognition to same-sex couples once left us vulnerable, to homophobic family members, to landlords who wanted to evict us. And that 2022 case in New York, like so much early law recognizing the existence of same-sex couples, was about a lease, about an apartment Three men in a throuple, one died, the man whose name was on the lease, and the landlord moved to evict his survivors because they weren't, quote-unquote, family members. Judge Karen May Backdan said, nope, these men are family. A throuple is a family, at least in New York. The bills introduced in Berkeley and Oakland go farther, protecting polyfamilies, platonic co-parents living together, cohabitating asexual folks, Single people who decide to share an apartment or a house, multi-generational households, protects all of those different kinds of families from discrimination in housing and other areas. But most importantly, in housing. And this is a real issue. There are places still, cities and entire states, where two or more unrelated adults are not legally allowed to live together. Maine, New Hampshire, Nebraska, Georgia, Virginia, 
Michael Waters wrote a piece about it in The Atlantic last May. A piece with the headline, Where Living with Friends is Still Technically Illegal. And he opens with a case in Connecticut where a woman and her husband and their kids moved into a big mansion in Hartford with six of her friends, plus a couple of their other children. Quoting from Michael Waters' lead here in The Atlantic, A few months after moving in, Rosenblatt found a cease and desist letter in the mail from the city demanding that the 11 of them vacate their house, a house they owned. The charge was an obscure zoning violation. Rosenblatt's group had broken the definition of family under the law in Hartford. More than two unrelated people, according to the law, buried deep in the city code, could not live together under the same roof. Neighbors, Rosenblatt learned later, had filed a complaint. In Washington State, where I live, it was illegal for unrelated adults to live together until 2021, which means for a while there, me and Terry and his boyfriend and my boyfriend, we were breaking the law. Our neighbors must like us, I guess, because no one filed a complaint and the sheriff never showed up at our house to haul our boyfriends out in cuffs. So we're grateful to that. If any of my neighbors listen to the Lovecast, thank you very much for not calling the police. I am pro-Berkeley and Oakland moving on this legislation, setting an example, hopefully kicking off a trend that will pick up momentum, and eventually laws will change in cities and states where throuples are right now breaking the law, and friends who move in together, Kate and Allie style, to raise their kids are breaking the law and could lose their homes. I want the world to be safe for Thrupples and Kate and Allie blended families. I want the world to be safe for adult working women who decide to do the Golden Girls thing and live with their besties and maybe keep a subby houseboy or two around to do the chores and yard work can legally do that in all 50 states. But you know what else I want? I want people who live together in traditional families or alternative families. I want them to be able to find places to live The SF Chronicle reports a two-bedroom, 2.5-bathroom home in North Berkeley, California, went on sale in June for $1,080,000. Two weeks and 17 offers later, it sold for $425,000 over its more than $1 million asking price. 84% of houses go for tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars over their asking price in Berkeley, according to the SF Chronicle. Still, 70% do in Oakland. So yeah, it's great that if you live in Berkeley, you can't be discriminated against based on your family structure. But if you can't find a house in Berkeley, that law protecting you from discrimination isn't actually going to do you any good. In theory, your polyquad could, if this legislation passes, live without fear of discrimination in Berkeley. But in reality, your polyquad probably isn't going to be able to find housing in Berkeley that you can afford or in Oakland, or in SF, or in Portland, or in Seattle. Or if you already have a place in one of those cities, rising rents and rising property values and rising property taxes, which are rising because we aren't building enough housing in places where people want to live, could force you out. Look, we want our blue cities and our blue states to be able to take in, to offer refuge, to trans people fleeing anti-trans laws in red states, to women who want to live in cities and states where they can get abortions when they need them without having to go beg a judge or risk arrest crossing state lines. I have a letter that I got this week from the parent of a 12-year-old who came out, and this parent wants to do the right thing by their kid 
and move from the red state where they live right now to a big city in a blue state where their queer kid will be safer. And they can't because they can't find an apartment in a blue city in a blue state that they can afford. We can't brag that a place like Seattle or Berkeley is a better place for queer people or Seattle and Berkeley are better places for poly people or different kinds of family structures. If queer people and poly people and alternative families and traditional families can't move to these cities because there isn't enough housing. So yeah, pass these laws. Laws protecting choice, laws protecting access to trans healthcare, laws welcoming immigrants, laws protecting different kinds of family structures. But if we don't build housing, more of it and a lot more of it, if we don't rezone huge swaths of these big blue cities that we live in to allow more apartment buildings and townhouses, passing these laws, these anti-discrimination laws protecting polyamorous quads, I'm sorry, it's just performative garbage. You can't put a sign up in front of your house that says, in this city, we believe that you are welcome here, that your family should be safe here, while refusing to tear down walls that keep people from moving to your city and your neighborhood. In other news, the OG buttfuckers, the Greeks, have legalized same-sex marriage. This week, legalized same-sex marriage. Greece, the first country with a majority Orthodox populace, to do so. Fun fact, anal intercourse used to be known as Greek. If you were into buttfucking, you would say, I am into Greek. Before people started to identify as tops or bottoms, they identified as Greek active, that would be the top, or Greek passive, that would be the bottom. Anyway, nice to see gay marriage, same-sex marriage, come to Greece or come home to Greece. Thinking of you today, Alexander. And Hephaestus. All right, coming up on the show, on the micro, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and joining me on the Magnum, Peter McGraw, professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at University of Colorado Boulder, here to talk about his new book, Solo, Building a Remarkable Life on Your Own. Peter and I talk about the loneliness epidemic, the impact financial independence for women has had on straight relationships, and how different relationship styles and structures can benefit people once they freed themselves from the expectation that monogamous, sexually exclusive, long-term relationships are their only option. All that coming up on today's Lovecast. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Dipsy. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com savage. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Foria. Foria crafts 100% all-natural sexual wellness products so you can experience deeper intimacy and transcendent moments of sexual pleasure solo or with your partner or partners. Get 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com savage. This episode is brought to you by the Meridian Trimmer, the very best tool for trimming your body hair. Go to meridiangrooming.com and use the code SAVAGE for an exclusive 15% off. Hey, Dan. I've run into a few men over the years who have had a foot fetish, and I've never heard of a woman having one. It's just a weird hunch, but is this one of those things that's really gendered? Is it like an AMAB thing? I don't know. Like, I've met women who have had like a thing for hands, which I mean, like I understand where that's coming from, but yeah, I don't know. It's just something I've always been kind of curious about. And like, I understand that other fetishes have like 
certain things are tend to be favored by one gender or any other. But yeah, no, just something I've always been kind of curious about. Like, is this solely like a guy thing? I don't know. I'd like to hear your thoughts. This is a very complicated question. Generally, as a rule, yes, men seem to manifest, males assigned male at birth peeps, seem to manifest more kinks and sexual fetishes. You're not going to meet out there in the wild a lot of female foot fetishists. There is something about male sexuality. There is something about the testosterone-soaked dick monsters men are that seem to lend itself to the kind of abstract erotic associations that somehow erotic imaginations make and link and connect. A thing for feet is called a, a partialism. That's a strong sexual attraction or arousal by some part of somebody else's body that ain't their junk, not their genitals. Everyone's comfortable with partialism when it comes to boobs because almost everybody is into all male people into tits to some lesser or greater extent. It's normal for someone to have that particular partialism. But for that same intense desire and longing to focus on the feet, people are like, oh, that's super weird and random. Well, you know, there is something a little weird and random maybe about the sexual meaning, desire that gets attached to boobs, to that very prominent secondary sex characteristic that communicates so much and attracts so much attention and desire. But yeah, women typically don't manifest these kinds of kinks, partialisms, intense fetishistic attachments to objects or fabrics or things that to someone else might seem random or non-sexual. One of the interesting things we've learned about sex and gender because of more people coming out as trans and more assigned female at birth persons coming out as trans men and transitioning. When you listen to these stories of people who lived a significant chunk of their life as female and then transitioned to male, began to take testosterone, their relationship to sex and desire was radically altered by testosterone. People who thought they were horny pre-testosterone were horny in ways they had never anticipated a person could possibly be horny after they started taking testosterone. What I think is really interesting about the whole kinks, fetishes thing, and it's I have a ton of anecdata and no actual data to back this up, is most studies of paraphilias, non-normative sexual desires, or people's sexual interests involve college students. Men, another thing that I think is unique to male sexuality, to all that testosterone sloshing around in our systems, men, males, tend to have a very keen understanding of what it is that turns them on, what their fetishes and kinks are by the time they're teenagers. Women often don't grow into their kinks or fetishes or their paraphilias, their non-normative desires until middle age. Why is that? To late 20s, 30s, look at the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomena. All of the people reading those novels and furiously masturbating to them were not 15-year-old girls. They were 35, 45-year-old, 55-year-old adult women who were growing into this kink all of a sudden. Why is that? Is it because the way women are socialized is so different from the way men are socialized and men are socialized to feel entitled to their kinks, desires, even though there's a lot of kink shaming that goes on? I know people, I know men 
who have foot fetishes who struggled with the shame of it for so long. They didn't exactly feel entitled to their kinks in the way that we make people sound or make men sound when we talk about this. God, it's just another sign that men and women are fundamentally sexually incompatible because you've got people for the most part picking partners uh, from the same age cohort. And so you have women in their teens, twenties selecting guys looking for guys who don't have kinks who are normal like they are because they're normal and they don't have kinks and then women partner with these vanilla guys and then suddenly those women when they're in their 20s or 30s their kinks start to surface and rather than being able to call in chits from the guy whose kinks they'd been indulging for 10 15 years when their kinks began to manifest themselves are suddenly having to negotiate how to incorporate their kinks into what had been a very vanilla relationship up to that point. The vanilla relationship that that woman, when she was 22, thought she wanted all her life, and then at 42 realized, yeah, no, she wanted more than she realized. It's a fascinating area, fascinating area of study. There's also something about women's kinks that seem to be more about narrative and story and less about specific objects like feet or latex or a fabric. And it's just, it's just fascinating. And we may never know the answer, but when we look at the different ways kinks, fetishes, paraphilias, partialisms play out, manifest in males and females, I think it's a sign. It's another sign that there are some fundamental hardwired differences between males and females. And there's nothing wrong with that. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am calling because I have fetish sandals that no longer fit me, and I would like to give them away. But I don't know if I feel comfortable posting that on the usual platforms, Craigslist, Facebook, Nextdoor, etc., or taking them to my local thrift store. Any suggestions? They are... They're sexy. They say um, foot fetish on the soles of the shoe. So any suggestions would be welcome. Fetish gear is expensive. Please, please don't send those hot sounding fetish sandals to a landfill. Don't leave them on the bus. Don't put them in the bottom of a box going to Goodwill where they may or may not wind up on the sales floor. You have to rehome those shoes. Fetish gear is expensive. There are a lot of people out there who have kinks, who would love to have some fetish gear and can't afford it. For the gay ones, for the gay guys into leather and latex and BDSM and bondage and the bi guys, there is a company called Second Skin, secondskin.co, where people resell. It's sort of a Craigslist resale shop, online resale shop for gear. You know, people invest in gear, they buy gear. You can't return gear to the shop. And sometimes people buy something that doesn't fit or they outgrow it. And then what do you do with it? You find a new home. That's what you're going to have to do. You have to find a new home for these shoes. And since you don't want to put them on next door where your neighbors will see that for some reason you have foot fetish gear that you are trying to unload, I would encourage you to find some foot fetishists on the internet, which is not actually that hard to do. Find some foot fetish guys or find some pro-dam women who 
work with foot fetishists, who have foot fetish clients, and slide into their DMs with a picture and say, hey, I have these. And I would hate, you know, follow somebody if you get a good vibe, if you kind of like them, if you like the cut of their jib. Slide into their DMs and say, hey, I have these shoes. I don't want them to go to a landfill. I want them to find a good home with a responsible kinkster, a hot foot fetishist, and I like your stuff, and I'd like to send these to you if you would like to have them. You might have to make that offer two or three times, but I promise you, good fetish gear being expensive as it is, someone will take you up on that offer. Have you ever taken a bike ride and listened to erotica at the same time? How about on the bus? Cooking dinner? Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. Him and him, baby. Listen to this one. Apollo and Hyacinthus are spending a long summer afternoon together when Hyacinthus asks Apollo to teach him how to use his golden bow and arrow. They joke and jostle until a simple touch sets off the attraction they've long held back. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For Lowcast listeners, Dipsy's offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com savage. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash savage. That's dipsystories.com slash savage. Hey, Dan. Middle-aged gay guy here in the Midwest with, I guess, a hookup etiquette question. So I am back visiting the city I used to live in about five years ago, uh, having moved a couple hours away, and was talking to an old fuck buddy of mine on one of the apps. Had his picture there, knew exactly who he was, and I went over to blow him like I had used to do before I moved away. And I walk into his place and literally see him and thought it was somebody completely else. Like literally it was like, am I in the right place out loud? I asked him and he's like, yeah, I'm like, and I quickly realized, oh crap, it's the same guy. He has just let himself go completely. And I'm not here to shame anybody. He is a sexy bear now instead of a sexy, like in shape guy, but didn't know and didn't tell me. So of course I'm a nice person and I like take care of him and then I get out of there. But like, do I like message him and tell him like, dude, don't misrepresent yourself online. That's really rude. I mean, I don't really think I want to blow him again because of that. And I really wasn't as attracted to him. But regardless, like, shouldn't he be told to not do that? Just wondering your thoughts. I suppose he should be told not to do that. Maybe he's a listener. Maybe you just right now told him not to do that. One way to tell him not to do that is to call him and say, hey, I showed up. I was startled by the change in your appearance. Sucked your dick anyway. I am a team player. But kind of wasn't psyched about that. Don't want to do that again. And you shouldn't use such old photos on the apps. You're a sexy bear now. You should lead with that. There are guys who want to suck the gray pubes off sexy bears. Those are the guys you want to hang the shingle out for. Now, you could say all that to him. 
I think all of that is something that, you know, a gay guy into his 40s or 50s should know, can infer, if they aren't an idiot, do know. But, you know, there's another way to tell him that you weren't down. And I think you being startled and not sure if it was actually him when you arrived, message received, message sent. And the fact that next time you're home, you're not going to show up and blow him is another way to let him know that you're just not into him or into this. Yeah, the misrepresentation was a little galling. You know, one of the social norms around anonymous sex, fast sex, fuck buddy sex, is that if you actively misrepresent yourself, if you use old photos or not your photos, and then somebody shows up at your place and you're hoping that they are so averse to seeming impolite or hurting your feelings that they're going to go through with having sex with you anyway, even though you misrepresented yourself, that's kind of creepy and coercive and not okay. And so, yeah, if you invite people over to your house and you send out pictures, they're not feeling it when they arrive, they can say, no thanks. That can be scalding. You could have done that. You sucked his dick instead because you want to hurt his feelings. And so now, now what do you do? I, I don't think in your shoes I would call this guy and lay this all out. I think he knows it. He's a gay man. He's not an idiot. Well, <laughs> there's some overlap in the idiot and gay male communities. But he knows. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he did it. And he knows it is not okay. And you can send that message explicitly. Just send him the link to this podcast. Or you can send it implicitly by blocking him. You don't have to see his photographs ever again. That's one way to send that message. Or just the next time he hits you up, say, yeah, no, I wasn't 100% comfortable last time. And so, no thank you. Oh man, you missed Valentine's Day. Not to worry, Foria is open all year round. You can make it up to them. All of them with Foria's Intimacy Massage Oil. Intimacy Massage Oil can help create connection, help you or your partner enter a state of true relaxation and stir arousal. Skin will be left feeling hydrated, soft, supple, and ready for anything. Remember that first date feeling, the butterflies, the warmth, the electricity of the first time your partner touched you? It all comes flooding back with Intimacy Massage Oil. I also recommend Awaken Arousal Oil. Awaken is like a juicy warm-up that helps get you really turned on, increasing your pleasure and deepening your orgasms with a partner or solo. Awaken uses CBD and warming, sensation-inducing organic botanicals that enhance arousal, sensitivity, pleasure, access to orgasm and help with any discomfort. Best of all, Awaken just turns you on. So as your resident sexpert, sexologist, sex haver, sex promoter, you have my permission to try this. Go ahead and treat yourself and your partner. Have your juiciest and deepest sensual experience with a bottle of Foria. Foria is offering a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com slash savage or use code savage at checkout. That's F-O-R-I-A wellness.com forward slash savage for 20% off your first order. I recommend trying their new massage oil combined with their Awaken Arousal Oil. And yes, you can thank me and you will thank me later. Hi, Dan. So I am a 30-something-year-old woman straight. When it comes to sex and dating, I think I'm done. I just find the expenditure of emotional labor and 
frankly, sexual labor, just in a straight relationship, really not to be worth it. You know, I'm tired of being the only one who's expected to be GGG. I'm tired of expending so much of my emotional energy just to upkeep the relationships. It, it, and it's just, it's, it's not worth it to me. You know, I want to be clear. It's not that I'm a lesbian or demisexual or asexual or anything like that. Like I still find men sexually attractive, but I, I just think to myself, what's the point? Cause at best hooking up with them will probably be disappointing. And at worst I, could be raped and killed. So, you know, the the odds just don't seem stacked in my favor of a favorable outcome. So I'm just opting out. And while I do miss sex and intimacy sometimes, overall, <laughs> there's not one part of my life that hasn't gotten better since I chose to take myself out of the dating pool. I have time to travel and I have more friends than I ever have. And I'm engaged in my hobbies and volunteer and I'm even making more money than I ever have. And so, you know, I don't see a reason to stop doing what I'm doing. So I guess my question is, do you have an, a, an expert that has studied this? Because clearly I'm not the only one. I, this seems to be a thing that women are doing on mass that, they're just done with dating and finding themselves happier and healthier. We found an expert. We found someone who has studied this. Peter McGraw, behavioral scientist, professor, and author. His new book, Solo, Building a Remarkable Life of Your Own, is a blueprint for cultivating fulfilling relationships and creating a rich life outside traditional partnered structures. And he is here with us. Peter, thank you for coming on the show and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure. So before we get to the caller, you never married, never will, but you threw yourself a bachelor party. I did, yes, age 34. It was already sort of settling in that I probably wouldn't get married. Uh, some of it was based upon my previous experience, and some of it was my lack of desire to have children. Uh, and so I thought, why is it that only married people get to celebrate their singlehood? Who makes the rules? And so I invited a bunch of friends to my new home at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and we spent a weekend doing bachelor party things. Reading about your bachelor party kind of reminded me of uh, when Terry and I, I'm very much the partnered type, we had a 10th anniversary party celebrating the 10th anniversary of when we met mm -hmm. um, and invited our friends and family. What nobody knew was that we had s snuck off to British Columbia and gotten married, and our 10th anniversary party was actually our wedding reception, but we were the only ones who knew. And there was something kind of fun about doing it differently or doing it your own way, even though what you were doing differently was singlehood differently, singlehood with ceremony and celebrations of you as a single person. And what we were doing differently was that we wanted to get married and have a wedding reception, but we didn't want anybody to know. All right, so let's, let's talk about this caller. Sure. Did this come up in your research? What we're hearing from a lot right now are women who are choosing to remain single and that there's now, because of this growing political divide between men and women, mm -hmm. a greater incentive for many women to just say, fuck it. Maybe I'll fuck a dude every once in a while, but I'm not going to marry a dude. Is this turning up in the data? It is, yes. Well, so it's actually turning up in the data even more generally than this particular case. Uh, so in the United States, half of 
adults are single. That's 127 million people. And this is even more surprising. Half of them are not interested in dating or a relationship at the moment. And then what we're talking about here is another subset who are deciding for a particular reason that they're not interested. I think that those are unfortunate reasons, like the fact that you can't find a suitable partner, you know, listening to this question, I have to say, I sympathize, you know, I could, I could feel the frustration and the, the sadness and, and, and even a touch of anger in, in this uh, dynamic. But the overarching reason that people are able to, to be single, I think is actually, and especially women, is actually positive, which is that we now live in a society that no longer treats women as possessions to be transferred from a father's house to a husband's house. And the rise of women economically and, and educationally allows them to make this choice. And so now it is a choice where it was a time where, where this listener in 1960, she's still getting married because 90% of people got married. And if you were a woman and you wanted to leave your father's home, you did this by age 21. And you wanted to exist socially, financially, yes. professionally. Wanted Women to have in kids. in the 1960s still had to often get a husband's permission to go get a job, to apply for a job. Mm -hmm. There were so many women, these halcyon days that conservatives pine for, there were so many women marrying under a kind of duress that a lot of men who felt entitled to a wife or a woman or women didn't perceive. And mm -hmm. the disappearance of that duress, because a woman exists now uh, socially, is a legally autonomous individual. She can get her own fucking credit card. She can buy her own house. She can get a mortgage. She does, the, the way society was structured to basically make women children all their lives who need yes. a the father or the husband to function, that's gone. And what you find now are women realizing they don't have to settle and that no man or singlehood or being solo is better than somebody shitty who didn't get the memo that mm -hmm. as a man, you don't have that latitude to be as shitty as men were a hundred years ago and still expect to have a partner. Yes. And if anything, the, the childhood problem is now the opposite. So this is something I talk to a lot of uh, single men about, which is, and this is one of the tenets of solohood is you need to be able to parent yourself. That is, you, you need to be able to have friends and a social calendar and to be able to soothe yourself and feed yourself and close yourself. And it'd be nice to do it in a way that's also appealing to these women mm -hmm. so that you are seen as an equal that you are appealing uh, and, and hence if, you know, if you want to be marriable, you know, if you want to have a long-term relationship or even if you just want someone to be willing to have sex with you. And so uh, I think that's one of the, the major issues is that too many men give up within a relationship, their autonomy, their ability to take care of things because their partners are so good at it. So what does the data show? Are people who are not partnered, who are solo, happier? Because the message we get from the culture, pop culture, movies, television, film, our families, is that everybody needs to pair off and that you find your ultimate sense of fulfillment as a human being and an adult in a long-term committed relationship. 
Monogamous too. A monogamous yes. relationship. I was yes. gonna say, preferably if you're talking to my mother, a monogamous relationship and a marital <laughs> right. relationship. Um, she got the marital for me, but not the monogamous for me. But does the data back that up? Is that where human beings feel most fulfilled in those kinds of relationships? I actually appreciate you asking this question because I think the average person assumes that marriage equals bliss because it's the cultural message. And we're at a very interesting crossroads because there are a lot of people shouting to get married and live a fulfilling life. And they actually point to data that show that married people are slightly happier than single people who are happier than divorced people. And, um, and they're like, look, look, the data show it. The problem is you can't run an experiment that actually shows this effect. Moreover, to show the effect, you have to pull the divorced people out of the sample, which kind of feels like cheating to me, in a sense, mm -hmm. given that one out of three people divorce. But what's fascinating about these data and bust the myth that marriage makes people happy is that when you look at the data longitudinally, so you look at people before they get married and after they get married, married people who stay married have that slight happiness advantage before they even marry. And so ah. there's no causal effect. There's a slight, there's a honeymoon effect about a year before and a year after the wedding, but um, you go back to your previous levels of happiness. And moreover, and this I think is rather important, is that the, uh, the uh, difference between married and single people is so small that you can detect it statistically but it tells you almost nothing about how happy someone is. So what, whether knowing someone's happy or not tells you almost nothing about them. There's more of my conversation with Peter McGraw on the Magnum version of the Savage Love cast that you can subscribe to and listen now at savage.love. This episode is brought to you by the Meridian Trimmer, my new favorite tool for shaving down there. Meridian offers powerful trimmers that cut through even the coarsest hair, but their trimmers are gentle enough for your privates. You'll enjoy a comfortable shave below the belt with no nicks, cuts, or ingrowns. Meridian trimmers are for men, they're for women, they're for non-binary folks, and they're for any style, whether you prefer completely bare, neatly trimmed scruff, or a well-rounded bush. This high-quality waterproof trimmer is fitted with a 6,000 RPM motor, safe ceramic blades, and an anti-nick shaving guard. And Meridian has so many happy customers, over 1,000 five-star reviews online. With the Meridian trimmer, you can get your body hair looking just how you like it and feel good and sexy with your fuzz. Get a Meridian trimmer today for the ultimate trimming experience without the pain, discomfort, or awkwardness. Order now and take control of your grooming routine on your own terms. Listeners of the Savage Lovecast get an extra 15% off your order using the coupon code SAVAGE. Go to M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N grooming.com and use the code SAVAGE for an exclusive 15% off. You deserve a better and safer below-the-belt trimming experience, and with Meridian Trimmer, you can get one today. Hey, Dan. 30-something cis man in the Northeast, and my wife only wants to have sex in the shower. You know, we've had mismatched libidos for a while now, you know, especially after our son was born. Uh, honestly, we started showering together, you know, while he was napping or he was sleeping just so we could be, you know, efficient with our time. Uh, and at first, it was great. You know, we went from having maintenance sex once every couple of weeks to multiple times a week, you know, when we showered together. 
Uh, but over the last year and change, it's just become very formulaic. You know, we chat about our days while we clean ourselves. You know, when we're done, done, she asks if I want to have sex. We have some nice foreplay, and then we do standing doggy until I come. And then when she's in the mood, we, we will go back to our bed and, you know, I'll touch her while she uses her vibrator to get off. And that's how it goes every time. You know, besides saving time and water, when we've talked about it, my wife told me she likes it because, you know, she's self-conscious of her body and easily cold, you know, her words. Um, neither of which are problems, you know, when you're already naked and taking a hot shower. Uh, when she occasionally agrees to sex outside the shower, you know, she seems clearly disinterested um, and she gets dressed, you know, immediately after we're done. You know, at this point, I've stopped trying to initiate out of the shower. Uh, and this week, you know, I just, I found myself thinking about our time in the shower and it felt like an obligation. You know, I wasn't really looking forward to it like I have in the past. I guess my question is, should I trade exciting sex for reliable sex? I'd like things to change, but given our issues with mismatched libidos in the past, I don't want to risk saying something and then make my wife feel badly and disrupt our arrangement and just kind of throw things off. Speaking as a member of the self-conscious about your body community, the last place I want to have sex ever is in the shower. When you're showering, the lights are on. When you're showering, you're completely bare-ass naked in front of another human being who is also completely bare-ass naked in front of you. Listening to your call, I couldn't help but wonder if what's working about shower sex for your wife isn't so much the shower part. As a self-conscious about your body person myself, the shower part would actually be unappealing. It would work against sex at that moment. So I'm thinking what may be working for your wife about that moment is everything else that you described in the run-up to the sex, which was you and your wife being able to shut the door and be alone away from your kids together. You say that you talk about your day. It sounds like what's happening is you're creating a little space and a little time for some intimacy. And then what grows out of that intimacy is a desire for some sexual contact or a desire to meet sexual needs. Maintenance sex is not always a terrible thing, especially when you're parents for young children, you are going to have a lot of maintenance sex. And so it seems to me that if what's, if that's what's making sex at that moment work for your wife, despite the lights being on and the bare ass naked at a time when she's feeling self-conscious about her body, a time in her life when she's feeling self-conscious about her body, you can recreate those other elements at a different time and in a different place and hopefully make your wife feel as excited and aroused to have sex in the bedroom with the door shut after some time for you two to connect. Bring that intimacy and that connection to other spaces, create other opportunities. But you're going to have to risk being a little disruptive. I think it's important for people who are married, for people particularly in sexually exclusive relationships, it's really important for one or the other or both of them to be able to say, perhaps at different times over the course of their marriage and their sex life, I'm bored. I want to shake things up a little bit. How do we shake things up a little bit in a way that still makes you feel safe and physically warm? Get a space heater and doesn't 
exercise too much, doesn't sandpaper your nerves around feeling self-conscious about your body. You know, if you're not having sex in the shower, you can actually wear something while you're having sex. Sometimes it's terribly sexy to have sex with someone who's wearing something that makes them feel safe or warm or secure or hot. What are those things that your wife might be able to wear or you two might be able to wear together that would make her feel hot? But you can't have that conversation about shaking up your sex life if you can't be honest with each other about why you might want to do that. Now, it's risky. You go to somebody whose job it is to fuck you and say, I am bored by this fucking. They might be bored by the fucking too. We're in a rut and I'd like to get us out of that rut together. At the beginning of a relationship, the sex is effortlessly exciting because they're the adventure you're on, you're the adventure they're on 10, 15, 20 years into a relationship, particularly a sexually exclusive relationship. You are not the adventure anymore and they are not the adventure anymore. And if you want to feel that sense of adrenaline, even a little bit of stress hormones pumping, that arousal, that risk that made sex feel so adventurous at the start, you have to go on an adventure together intentionally. What would that look like for you? Adventure is a spectrum. What one couple regards as adventurous, another couple would regard as cozy and intimate. Your wife sounds like somebody who needs intimacy and needs to feel emotionally safe and centered to feel desire or to want to have sex. You've managed to create those feelings for your wife in this one location, in your house, the bathroom, at shower time. Recreate all of those settings, those sex settings for your wife outside of the bathroom, not at shower time. And tell your wife that that's what you want to do and that's what you intend to do. And I think you're within your rights to say we've been having sex in the shower for a very long time and you know what the challenge for the next month is? We're not going to have sex in the shower. We're going to have everything else that being alone together in the bathroom does for us around intimacy and connection and safety. We're going to do it someplace else. We're going to do it in the attic. Or we're going to do it in the basement. Or we're going to do it in the car. Or we're going to do it on date night. We're going to cancel fucking dinner on date night and go find someplace in public, in the dark, where we can fuck. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, I want to share a couple of listener comments about last week's show that were posted at savage.love. Says Chris Smith, Dan, Deadpool tried pegging for his girlfriend in the first Deadpool film and didn't love it, but what if they didn't know how to use lube or ease it in? What if eight years later, by the time Deadpool 3 comes out, it turns out he never gave up and now loves pegging? Possible and plausible. All right, if you're gonna show a character giving it up, and engaging in a sex act that makes the character miserable and they have to bail, and you want that same character to brag about engaging in that sex act three films later, it is on you, writers, director, producers, star, to give us that tried it again, liked it a lot more. Backstory. Marvel movies are 80% backstory, origin stories, and if your movie is going to dine out on the leading man being into pegging, you've got to show us how and when. He got into pegging. Says Lazy Femme, during your conversation about how polarizing ENM is, Dan, that's ethical non-monogamy, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a middle-aged straight man who met someone who practiced ENM and said wistfully, I didn't even know that was an option. 
While he enjoys his life, there are plenty of people out there who resent people who practice ENM because they never felt like it was an option for whatever reason for them. Oh man, that is, I think, in some cases, true. And you see the same thing with some really angry gay closet cases out there. They look at men who are out, living openly as gay men, getting all the dick, and resent them. Because somebody else convinced them that being out and gay and getting their fair share of dick wasn't an option. And they look at out gay men and are filled with rage, but not at the people who lied to them. They rage at the out gay men who proved that they were conned successfully by liars. Seems to me you should be mad at the liars, not mad at the out gay men. But man, a lot of those angry gay closet cases are mad at out gay men and it is always weird. Finally, says Jonathan, the bi caller with the cuck fiancé. You should have been harder on him, Dan. The caller says that the majority of the time when they're having sex, there is another man. That seems tiring. I love threesomes with my boyfriend, but we fuck just fine without them. The caller could do better as a solo poly guy than attached to this lady who already has kids who seems to see him as her personal gay porn studio. Something else for that caller and his fiance to think about if they do both want kids, and that's not a question I think we have an answer to yet. As much as you might want to have threesomes, threesomes become infinitely harder to arrange for logistical reasons and reasons of simple exhaustion once you have small children. So if your sex life requires the presence of other people to exist at all, you're not going to have much of a sex life for the next few years after you have kids, caller. Something to bear in mind. All right. For more listener comments and more of my responses, be sure to check out Struggle Session, a weekly bonus column for Magnum Subs. goes up every Thursday at savage.love. It is also the place where you will find the Muppet-Faced Man of the Week. Now, on to listener response calls. Hi. This is in response to episode 903. And the bi guy who was getting married and had these elaborate plans for him and his fiance on their wedding night. I thought Dan's solution about getting fucked by your groomsmen before the wedding and then after the wedding having sex with fiance was a good one. But my advice, take that pressure off of yourself and don't plan to do any of that on your wedding night. Plan to get together with your fiancé and have this elaborate fantasy be played out sometime after your wedding. So the two of you can just concentrate on enjoying the special day and not have this sword hanging over your head of having to play out this fantasy of getting fucked by all these men to get your fiancé riled up so the two of you could have sex. Good luck and congratulations. Hi, Dan. You seem to really go off on how men look around for uh, trying to assert whether there are fuckable people around them and attractive people around them. And um, I know that I look around and I'm a cishet woman. I look around at men. I try to figure out who's attractive. I look around my eyes. I would say that maybe the only difference here is that I have learned that in certain situations, like a gym, 
I will do my best to keep my eyes to myself because gazing at men in gyms have repercussions of them thinking that they can invade my personal space just because I'm looking around. So maybe it's not about whether women do not gaze and watch as much, but it is about the social norms and social repercussions when we do that make us do it less. Hi, this is a response for the woman who is looking to have penetrative sex for the first time. I didn't even get through the entire answer that was delivered, though it seemed very considerate, but I couldn't get through it because I think sometimes the answers are overcomplicated. She should definitely put this in her profile. She is going to get so many great applicants for this job if she words it correctly. And she's going to meet really, really great guys. I, first time I had penetrative sex with a man was when I was 28. And I was able to select a great candidate. And I still think really fondly of him. He is a great guy. So I I think she just needs to put it out there. And she can actually, she's going to get a great selection to choose from. Anyway, I'm super excited for her. I think she's going to have a great time. That's also all I can think of is like, oh, my God, her life is just going to get so much more fun from now on. And we're going to leave it there. We've got three ways for you to get us your questions and your comments for future shows. You can record your question or comment at savage.love slash askdan, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at q at savage.love. And you can call our landline and leave us a message at 206-302-2064. Hump 2024 Part 1, playing in Seattle and Olympia this weekend before opening in San Francisco and Portland and Albuquerque and Madison and Long Beach in the next couple of weeks. To find out when Hump is coming to your city or a city near you, to find out when you can see Hump in a theater as Hump was meant to be seen, go to humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Instagram, follow me on threads at Dan Savage, follow me on Blue Sky at Dan Savage, and I am still on the bad place at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Peter McGraw on Twitter at Peter McGraw and on Instagram and threads at Peter McGraw. And to learn more about his books and his work, check out his website, petermcgraw.org. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, as ever, for downloading.